All right, we're back. Uh, this is Insights, episode 17. This is part two with Serata. We're talking about uh, law. Um, so the background so far is we've talked about Stanford undergrad, Stanford masters uh, that lead up toward law school. Um, and now I want to talk about law and then the types of, of law that you can practice. So Berkeley, uh, for people that aren't familiar, is really known as uh, this hotbed of liberal thought. You know, in the 1960s uh, and early 70s, this is where change was coming out of. That's what Berkeley is kind of known for. Um, and so that's a fantastic place to go to law school if you want to change the world and go out there and help refugees like you did when you were 17 and, and do those kinds of things. So you end up at Berkeley. And do you immediately have a choice of what kind of law you want to practice? Or is it still kind of wide open at that point? Um, I think at that point in time, my choices were quite open because the only thing I knew was that I wanted to do something that would enable me to eventually go back to Asia mm. is the end goal. Um, but keeping in mind that a JD, right, it's a very broad degree. There is no specialization, at least for Berkeley. It wasn't like you, like there were certificates, right, for um, M&A, corporate law, tax law, and whatnot. But these, but you still had to go through the basic curriculums, like criminal procedure, um, civil procedure, those basic knowledge. So it, it, it kind of makes you a well-rounded lawyer but you only specialize once you go to the in, into the job itself mm. so at the time I definitely didn't have an idea of um, <clears throat> what kind of lawyer I wanted to be but the one thing I knew for sure is that it wouldn't be litigation since I'm not a very litigious person and you know adversarial situations aren't really <laughs> kind of my cup of tea <laughs> All right. So you didn't want to, you know, get up and, and litigate and, and argue and uh, stand in front of the Supreme Court and get yelled at by nine judges. So, no, I totally yeah. understand that. But um, if we think back to the 17 year old version of yourself, you know, human rights law is always I mean, it's an interesting thing to talk about when you're young, for sure. But it's also legitimately an interesting thing to do. Um, but maybe not the most profitable thing to do. The ROI may not be there. Uh, it's emotionally exhausting. So at what point do you kind of start to maybe skew one direction? As you said, the education itself is broad, but you are having to make decisions along the way about uh, what kind of law you're going to practice, what job you're going to accept when you graduate. Um, when did that occur to you? And what kind of convinced you to take your first job out of law school? Right. So, I mean, it's, I guess you go into law thinking that you'll definitely, you'll be able to use that kind of knowledge to make a difference in the world. And that's always the hope, right? So I did go to Berkeley. I got a public scholarship, a, pub, a public interest scholarship. So it, it kind of started at that point. And then I did a lot of um, clinics, helping those um, various workers with labor law issues. So it was always great to be able to have that kind of interaction with um, people who are having these kind of issues and really make a difference in their lives. So I always appreciated that kind of aspect to my legal education but at the same time I think when you kind of take a step back and you look at how much your parents have invested in your education whether it was like <clears throat> international school throughout my life so right. that was more than 
17 years. And so the standard of living that you kind of want, what kind of goals you want in your life, I think you also had to find a, a good balance between making enough and kind of finding a meaningful job. So when it came to my second year of law school, I think that's when we kind of apply for different internships, like um, to see which, which firms will make an offer for a summer vacation scheme. So that's when we, we really get to know the law, different law firms, what kind of um, things they do, what kind of practices they offer. So at that point in time, um, the one that really came across for me was Latham and Watkins, because there were a lot of practices. They had global offices worldwide. And there was this huge emphasis on pro bono because I don't know how it, it kind of differs by law firm, but for some law firms, um, such as Latham, the hours that we spend in pro bono work, right? Um, whether it's like writing memos, helping represent clients in their cases or whatnot, those do count towards our billable hours. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like part of a job and there's a culture of encouraging um, associates to hit a certain minimum number of um, pro bono hours in a year. So I appreciated that aspect, but at the same time, it was also exciting to be able to work at a kind of a global law firm that really does some of the most advanced and groundbreaking deals um, that are that are always on the front page. So it, 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 was, an, it was a good balance for me, let's say that. Right, and that's also really important, I think, for people uh, out there listening is that there there is a balance or there can be a balance, right? So despite the fact that you may focus on corporate law or, you know, we'll get into that exactly what the, the, the full-time, the most time job is, that there are opportunities. I guess it's kind of like doing CSR at a, a regular company, but you're actually performing, uh, you know, legal services for people that maybe can't afford them or, uh, you know, reading over things, looking through contracts, doing things of that nature. So there is that pro bono element so that you do feel like you get the social um, impact that you're looking for, but you're also making a a livable wage, you're making good money. um, And it's not just about your lifestyle, right? So if you did the math and you're like, okay, I just need to make enough to live on, then that very much depends on the quality of life you want. But uh, as you point out, if you go backwards and think about how many years that you had of uh, international education and then going to Stanford, I mean, ISB is super expensive, right? ISB is more expensive than uh, a lot of colleges. I mean, it's definitely more expensive than I went to a state school, right? And I'm I'm from Texas, so we have really good state schools. I mean, we're we're very fortunate in that uh, regard. So I would yeah, quick math. Uh, a year at ISB is more expensive than um, uh, four years of tuition at a state school if you're from that state. So, yeah, um, I think back then it was what seven seven hundred k. Yeah, seven hundred k Thai baht, and now yeah. it's like one mil. So yeah, I think it's a million baht. It's a yeah. ridiculous number. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a million baht a year. So uh, it is very expensive. And if you start thinking about the ROI, like I got to pay that back. I mean, that's this huge sum of money. Um, and, and that does end up influencing where you want to be that 17 year old version of you. That's like, I just want to save the world, you know, inevitably feels a little different at 21, 22, definitely 24, 25, uh, looking back on it now, uh, 
you and but I think the cool thing about law is that you could pivot into that. Like you said, you can do it pro bono or you can do it in five years, 10 years, 20 years when you feel like you've checked the financial boxes or the professional boxes or things of that nature. So um, I know for me personally, I, I had to make a decision about uh starting a company that was going to just make money, or are we going to work for, with scholars, for example? Um, and a third of our clients are scholars, and that's not for financial reasons, that's for social reasons. Um, and then the UN uh, consulting, getting to go to refugee camps, uh, working with uh, the United Nations just on coaching them and teaching them about how to engage with the private sector more effectively or understand Southeast Asia uh, is really rewarding. Uh, and you still get to do that, but you don't have to make it 100% your day job because it is financially, emotionally um, very hard uh, to do that all in, uh, you know what I mean? But you don't have to abandon it entirely either. Yeah, so I, I think the fact that you knew that going into your firm, that there was going to be an opportunity to do, do that a little bit uh, is very cool. Now, what I'd like to talk about is expectation versus reality, um, because this is, I think this is true of all degrees, is I think it's going to be this, and it turns out to be this. So what did you end up doing? Where, where was your first posting, and specifically, what kind of law did you practice? Um, so I kind of went around the world on this, because so when I was applying for vacations, um, vacation schemes, summer vacation schemes, I was offered by both Latham um, Hong Kong office and Latham Singapore office and I ended up kind of just going with the Hong Kong office given that um, the boss that I wanted to work with was based in Hong Kong and he had a growing Thailand practice okay so I chose Hong Kong and at the time how it worked was that we kind of start off all as what we call unassigned associates you can kind of just dabble in any practice you want you can explore M&A litigation arbitration um, capital market markets and whatnot. So they start us all off at the New York office, which is one of our bigger offices. So they offer um, a more rigorous training. So I started there, was there for about maybe six, seven months. Um, it wasn't so busy. And then so they seconded me over to the Singapore office. So I had some experience there for about six months. And eventually I made my way back to Hong Kong, where I was there for about three years. Um, so it took me a bit of time to kind of figure out which area I wanted to work in. Um, but given that, you know, Asia, the Asian offices are much smaller in terms of manpower, the practices we offer, there wasn't as many practices to select from with the mm. key ones, of course, being like um, M&A, capital markets, finance. So finance perhaps wasn't one of the ones that were more interesting to me. And it was more of like M&A or capital markets. But I think as time went on, it was a bit clearer that with my US degree, um, as well as kind of, I, I do enjoy like kind of a less adversarial situation that mm -hmm. capital markets were was perhaps more responsive to my strengths and we do have a growing thailand capital markets practice where we work on a lot of like um big thailand ipos and debt offerings so that's kind of why i ended up in selecting capital markets okay and i think this is where people can maybe start to relate because uh you know we don't see a, a ton of law school applicants but actually we do see people 
that maybe went to law school or maybe just did LLM, but they want to use that law background uh, in another space. And what you're describing is, is you know, IB, right? Um, and so IPOs, uh, this is something people are really familiar with. Uh, and understanding there is a legal aspect to that, of course, right? Um, and so you have these big IPOs, you have mergers and acquisitions, as you described, uh, and uh, less adversarial, for sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are hostile takeovers, but, you know, most <laughs> of the time, people, you know, there's a target, you want to go after it, or two companies yeah. decide they're, they're better off as one. Um, and so, yeah, it's not that hostility. Um, what I'm kind of curious about, because just from talking to so many, I, we, we work with a ton of investment bankers um, and uh, some people, let's say 10 or 15 years, I've been doing this for 16 years, you know, 10 years ago, people were wanting to go into IB. Now it's a lot of uh, investment bankers wanting to go into tech. So still working with the same people, just different direction. Um, <laughs> now on your end, uh, is 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 it monotonous is it the same because ipos i mean there are certain laws you have to follow there are certain processes required by these different exchanges whether that's in singapore or the set in thailand um is one day the same as the next or is every situation a little bit different is work different and challenging every day um, I wouldn't say it's monotonous, but at the same time, I wouldn't say it, it's, it, it's vastly different day by day, because I think when you've done a number of capital markets deals, whether it's debt or equity, there is a general process to it, like whether there's a certain filing date that you need to meet, there's certain documents that you need to be have in place. So there's kind of like a procedure and a way to doing it that you kind of learned and kind of adapt over time. So you do become more comfortable with it over time, right? So, right. Um, but at the same time, you'll realize that every client has different concerns, different wants, different needs. There's a different dynamic for every every client, all the banks, whether sometimes we have syndicates with like 10 banks, sometimes our syndicates are five banks. So the dynamics are always different and like any other job whether it's consulting or banking right it's very it's it's very much a client-centric customer service kind of field mm. and as great as you can be with your um, technical know-hows it's also a lot about like how to manage people really and build those relationships that's great i mean it's great to hear that those soft skills continue to pay off because it is an area where uh, again, since you were uh, in high school, that's an area where you've uh, shined and you don't want that to go away as an asset. Um, so, um, and Stanford's such a touchy-feely kind of school. It's very soft skill driven. So you want that to pay off as well. So it's yeah. totally that that's happening. Um, uh, I would have said I, I had the best soft skills. Um, I think it was something that came over time. High school is definitely a true and legit nerd. I was very introverted, <laughs> very quiet. Um, I mean, it, it, it was great to go to Stanford and that kind of really brought me out of my shell, made me more comfortable in my own skin. And I think going through law school and then starting this job has made me a lot tougher and um, more expressive, let's say. Mm. Right. Well, I mean, part of that is just high culture. I mean, you grow up with a certain level of humility and, and people can be kind of quiet. But I think what I would say is that, you know, you say that you're an introvert and, and or were. Uh, and I think that could be 
you know, accurate in the sense that you don't talk to everybody in the exact same way. You don't immediately open up to people. But I will say that at age 17, I felt like I got to know you really well. Now, maybe it takes somebody spending a lot of time with somebody, but I felt like I got to know you really well. And then that carried over. And I've always felt close to you um, because I felt like I knew you. Uh, so again, the way you perceive yourself or the way strangers may perceive you or versus your close friends, that may vary. Uh, but as you said, once you get to Stanford and you realize you have to talk to, you know, not just five, 10 close people, but hundreds of people, and then you get to law school and you got to stand up in front of everybody. Uh, it's a different level of being comfortable in your own skin, as you mentioned. So, uh, I think that's an evolution that probably all of us go through, uh, you know, as we move uh, into adulthood, uh, but I can definitely see it moving from, uh, you know, Indonesian and Thai culture into the U.S. and and then Hong Kong, of course. Um, and and then now you're based out of of Singapore, correct? Yeah, I yeah. moved back last year. Right. So I mean, uh, some pretty so even though you move back to Asia, you're still in some pretty assertive environments, uh, at least compared to to Thai culture and and by the nature of what you do, that is very much a requirement. Um, so very cool. What I'd like to do with our last few minutes is I'll transition into part three and, and hear about what's next. So uh, we'll go ahead and wrap here uh, for part two um, and really an interesting journey uh, throughout your, your legal career. Mm -hmm.